This is the East Trauma Cast. With your moderators, Ferox Mapback, University of Florida, Jacksonville. Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah. Carrie Valdez from Spectrum Health in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Advancing science, fostering relationships, and building careers. Well, hello and welcome to this edition of the of the Trauma Cast. Um, for many people, palliative care is synonymous with the end of life care and is what you offer a patient when there is, quote, nothing more you can do, close quote. Um, our guests today are here to dispel this idea and to talk to us about what palliative care really means and how it fits into optimal care for the injured patient and the emergency general surgery patient and ICU patient. So um, as is tradition on the podcast here, I'll go ahead and have them introduce themselves. Um, why don't we start with uh, Red? Red Hoffman, you want to introduce yourself real quick. Sure. My name is Red Hoffman. I'm an acute care surgeon at Mission Hospital in Asheville, North Carolina, and a very, very part-time hospice doctor as well. <laughs> Great. And uh, Red, I have to say, I, I keep seeing your name crop up everywhere. I saw your pace in uh, JAMA, uh, a piece of my mind just a few months ago, which was outstanding. And uh, uh, we'll put a link to that here in the podcast. And just yesterday, I saw your uh, PEG and tracheostomy uh, article in, uh, I think that was JAMA surgery. It was in yesterday, uh, recently. Um, so actually surgical clinics of North America right. just did a, uh, primary palliative care, um, edition edited by, uh, Dr. Pringle Miller, which I was very lucky to be a part of. Yeah. Well, and I hope, hope we'll get into some of that when we're talking about ICU, uh, palliative care. And I, and I have a sus sneaking suspicion we will, um, <laughs> Next, uh, Benoit. Benoit Blando, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself, Benoit? Yes, uh, I, uh, I am an unemployed surgeon at this time. I should join the University of New Mexico as the, their trauma medical director in a few, you know, depending on the, the credentialing and all that stuff. And uh, I claim to be a palliative care physician too. I don't do much hospice. Uh, I do daily uh, palliative care, and we certainly will talk about that. Uh, at some point in AGS, in AGS, in uh, in the ICU, um, when I met different patients and meet different needs. Outstanding, and last but certainly not least, uh, joining me is my favorite trauma cast moderator, Carrie Valdez. Thanks, Carrie, for joining us. <laughs> Thank you for the compliment. I'm happy to be here. Great. Well, um, to get things started off, let me uh, let me ask one question here, and then uh, then we can just kind of go where the conversation goes. But um, uh, let me start with you, uh, Red. How do you define palliative care? Just for those that I think most people kind of have a sense of what it is, but in my experience, at least, and in my own personal experience, I should say, I had a misunderstanding about palliative care for uh, a long time. Um, do you want to give us how you think of your definition of palliative care and what you think, uh, what, what you think it means? And if I could, uh, if I could add on to that question, I, if you, in your answer, if you wouldn't mind, can you help me distinguish between palliative, hospice, social work, case manager? There's lots of different people in the building that kind of help us with these issues. Yeah, great of course. And that's one of my favorite things to do is really help people understand the distinction between palliative care and hospice care. So for me, palliative care is really interdisciplinary care meant for anyone who has either a life-changing or a life-limiting illness. You could argue all of us, our lives are all limited. We're all going to die. So we could all benefit from palliative care at some point. Um, but really, we see palliative care get involved early in patients who have any sort of life-limiting illness, whether that be cancer, a trauma that might limit their life, um, even a new diagnosis of something like diabetes, which could be very life-changing. And I think one of the things that distinguishes palliative care from other parts of medicine is that it truly is meant to be delivered by an interdisciplinary team. And so when I say that, I mean a team of doctors, nurses, social workers, um, chaplains, sometimes we'll have a pharmacist on the team. And the idea that it's interdisciplinary, meaning it's not the doctor who's in charge, it's really a total team sport. And some patients might 
really need that support of the chaplain or the licensed clinical social worker while someone else really might need the skill of the pharmacist. Um, and then as far as the difference between palliative care and hospice, you know, I think of palliative care as this big umbrella term and hospice really falls underneath that. Hospice is really meant for patients who are one, in the last six months of their lives, and two, and I think this is very important, for patients who are no longer really interested in pursuing disease-modifying treatment. So meaning you could be in the last six months of your life, say with stage four ovarian cancer, but still be interested in pursuing disease-modifying treatment. And therefore, I think you'd be better served by palliative care. But when you're no longer interested in pursuing the chemotherapy, then perhaps hospice care would be more appropriate for you. Okay. And um, Benoit, I'm going to direct this to you, but um, I still feel like as a, you know, as a, what I consider a fairly aggressive, uh, you know, EGS, ACS surgeon, I can't help but shake the sometimes nagging feeling that when I consult palliative care or I recommend palliative care for my patients that I'm somehow failing or giving up or it, it, it kind of, it, it strikes at the heart of like who I am as a, as a surgeon. Can you, can you talk about that impulse and is that common or, um, you know, am I completely up in the night to feel that way? Um, that's a very good question. I, I don't think it's uh, abnormal. I think it's expected. Uh, we have not been raised to give up, but palliative care is nothing but giving up. It's another therapeutic. It's another mode of treating patients. By the way, treating patients, their family, their family and support, and also sometimes our own team yes. um, dealing with the death or, uh, as Red mentioned, the life changing sometimes forever events is not innocuous on any of us. I mean, um, it is hard on us. As you mentioned, we work hard for that. But at some point, what we do is not for patients, it's two patients. And we have to reconcile ourselves and our team to what is... Um, the option for uh, the specific patient you mentioned, or actually you did not mention, but I think this is uh, a process that goes from us to them and vice versa. And can I add something to that? I love to think of palliative care as just an extra layer of support. And that's how I'll often kind of quote unquote, sell it to the patients and their families that I'm in no way giving up, but I really just want you to feel supported. And oftentimes, as Benoit said, I, sometimes the team needs support, the nurses need support for some of these difficult um, patients and some of these difficult situations. And so I feel like having that team just kind of um, kind of helps the whole situation. Well, let me ask this. So let's say I'm in a situation where there's, like you described, either life-changing or life-limiting illness. And I want to consult palliative care. In your ideal world, I could only imagine you'd want to speak to the surgeon or the intensivist or the hospitalist ahead of time. So we're all on the same page together. Like, what would be your kind of best case scenario consult? How would this go? Benoit, you want to take that first? Yeah, so it's uh, it's the trap question because we live in a very paternalistic model where uh, the um, the surgeon or the surgeons are running the show. But if we go to the model which is claimed everywhere, which is patient-centered care, we should not have, as surgeons, any opposition of any kind when a suggestion to palliative care uh, happens. We may have intellectually discussion uh, from the perspective of what the therapeutic option, the prognostication, but it's not about us. And that's sometimes... Uh, difficult for us to, you know, to refrain the sentence in such, well, it's not time to do it now. Uh, we have other options. But again, when people decide to have a different opinion um, or an additional opinion, I think uh, it's, it's, uh, it's open and can be generated by the family, the support, the team, or me. And I Um, Carrie, in answering to your, your question, like, I, I think I've learned some lessons the hard way, especially um, when I was a critical care fellow, very interested in palliative care and uh, hadn't completed my palliative care training yet. I think I definitely stepped on some toes, you know, taking care of patients in the ICU and not always kind of checking in with the primary surgeon who really, you know, that was the 
primary care person for that patient. Um, so I've learned when I am feeling like if I'm in the ICU and taking care of another surgeon's patient, I, I will talk to them about it first because I just think it's courteous. I, you know, regardless of what I think about what's best for the patient, I've also learned that, you know, the patient will leave or will die. And here I am still in this hospital working with my colleagues. And for me, those relationships are just as important right now as it is um, taking care of the patient. So I've learned to kind of just approach the surgeon first, kind of tell them what I'm thinking. And then if I get that pushback, now I, I feel a little more emboldened and kind of digging in and saying, well, you know, what are your concerns about my getting another team involved and trying to have a conversation about it? And if they're not on board right away, maybe revisiting in a couple days. So Carrie, um, or uh, sorry, uh, Red, um, my question for you is, um, do you ever wear both hats? Are you ever in a situation where you have your own patient that you think palliative care would be an appropriate consult to call? And with your extra training, do you ever try to do it sort of, you know, or do you feel like it's a maybe sort of a conflict of interest and, and it's nice to have another perspective? How do you how do you navigate those waters if you have some experience with palliative care or special training? So that's a great question because oftentimes the nurse will ask me, sure. what hat are you wearing right now? And I, I think that really like is a good segue into this idea of the difference between primary palliative care and specialty palliative care. And, you know, primary palliative care to me is this group of... Um, um, sorry, kind of this idea of the things that all of us should be doing for our patients, knowing how to have a good uh, discussion about code status, knowing how to have a good discussion about goals of care, doing some basic symptom management. And for me, surgeons are well situated to be doing those things for all of our patients. And so I feel like I do a lot of primary palliative care for my patients all the time. Um, I learned some, again, lessons the hard way that when I feel like patients are, say, either young trauma patients who have a devastating injury where it's so sudden and the whole family is just torn apart, or um, sometimes some of these older EGS patients where the goals of care are not clear, they have a big family and no one's on the same page, that's when I'll get the palliative care team involved. Um, because I have found that, you know, either I don't have the time or I don't perhaps have like the emotional capability that day, or I'm about to go off service and my partner's coming on and I don't want to leave it for another partner. That's the time where I feel like I want the palliative care team to be involved so that they can kind of continue to follow that patient throughout their hospitalization. So it's really on a day-to-day basis. It depends on what my census looks like, what my emotional terrain looks like. Uh, it depends on how much palliative care I'm kind of willing to do. But I think about it every day. Should I get involved on that deep palliative care level or should I just kind of get another team involved to help me? Yeah, that's what I find most challenging is a lot of times those discussions by definition need to take a long time. And, and in our practices every day, it's really hard to carve out that time when you're also responding to the pager and, you know, having other patients to care for that are critically ill. So, um, well, let's, uh, let's segue then. Um, Benoit, let me ask you this question. Um, are there certain triggers that you think should, um, always or almost always trigger a palliative care consideration or consult? And what, what is the best time to raise that with families and with patients? What, what, when is the best time to, to say, oh, hey, there's this team of people or, or how do you do that? How do you navigate that? That's a, that's a great question. Uh, as uh, Red mentioned, when I was a fellow in critical care, I had also once in a while um, rough uh, interaction with some of the uh, the medical the other medical teams, and so I essentially try to have a protocol, uh, a broad protocol, not exactly very um, uh, detailed, but at least suggesting that if patient presents with this type of condition ABCD, then we should probably consider involving the palliative care team. For the family perspective, as soon as we identify one of these uh, prognostic factors, I think the family should be informed very, very, very early. Very difficult from our perspective, I think, to let days pass 
and say, well, um, yeah, well, Dave was on service last week. He didn't talk to you about that, but I think your brother, um, you know, may need the palliative care consult. I think we need to have a consistency and a clarity with the family as soon as we identify that we need assistance from another team. I was curious if um, if everybody could describe what their setup is at their hospital. So we have a pretty robust palliative care team, but our hospice team happens to be very um, slim. So if we consult hospice, maybe it's a full day before they actually get involved. We call palliative, they get involved immediately. Our social workers are incredibly involved. So what's your experience at your own hospitals? And, and Benoit, we'll start with you. Because uh, it's, it's different everywhere, right? So the support that we have depends on kind of the resources that are available. So I haven't started, as I mentioned, but several of the surgeons in a place I'm joining are also double board certified. I think we the number five surgeon who has uh, a specialty and about, uh, and uh, the, um, the, uh, the palliative care certification. There's a culture there that uh, allows people to talk about it without any difficulty. The previous place where I was, it was a ten. Uh, it was a thousand bed hospital. There's one palliative care doctor, three nurse practitioners. The culture was not there. The infrastructure will 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 essentially dictate what you can and what you cannot do. And uh, it's a reflection of the culture of the institution. If the program is supported, then you will have very very easy discussions, very very easy uh, actions and plans. If not, then you will do um, you will. Do what you can. And Red, how about your hospital? What's it like? So I was very lucky that where I did my palliative care fellowship, I actually ended up being hired as an acute care surgeon. So I'm just very um, familiar with the palliative care team. It's a it's a big, robust team. But however, they they are very uh, they're very busy. And so again, that kind of I try to um, myself try to teach the residents like how much primary palliative care um, is appropriate so that we're not kind of overburdening the team with, you know, I think kind of discussing, you know, consulting palliative care to say determine code status. I mean, I think all surgeons should be able to have a frank discussion with their patient about what they want their code status to be. Um, as far as hospice, I've, you know, I think another kind of primary palliative care skill is learning who's appropriate for hospice. And then in our hospital, we can just put in an inpatient hospice console, and that doesn't necessarily trigger the palliative care team to come. If the goals are clear and the DNR and the post form are already filled out, we'll just have a hospice liaison come from one of our um, local hospices once the patients give the choice. And they usually come, I'd say, within a 12-hour period. And we try to just kind of support them and perhaps put in, we have a comfort care order set in our system that we, you know, that anyone can place. And so we'll kind of support them if they're in their dying process while they're waiting to get into hospice. Sure. And Dave, what's, what's it like at your place? Yeah, we have a, a palliative care consult service that is um, basically run by uh, an attending level physician with palliative care training. There are uh, uh, advanced practice providers, either nurse practitioners or PAs that, that are on that team as well. Um, they don't have any primary patients, but they you know, are a true consult service. Um, you know, it's interesting to hear you guys talk because we actually don't have a distinction as far as I'm aware of the palliative care team versus hospice team. They're, they're all kind of wrapped up in the same group for us which in, on one level is convenient. It's one phone call and we don't have to try to parse out who, you know, who we need to call. But I, I'm wondering if maybe that contributes to some of the confusion between the two, you know, palliative versus hospice. Um, yeah. Well, um, moving forward, let me, let me give you a, cl a clinical scenario. And uh, Red, I'm going to start with you since this is kind of something we, we touched on earlier. Let's say you are called to the, let's say it's the medical ICU or respiratory ICU, and you're asked to see a patient who has, uh, you know, basically profoundly uh, severe illness, you know, life expectancy for this patient is probably measured in weeks to months, and you've been called to the mm -hmm. ICU to do a trach or a PEG. Um, can you 
maybe give me some examples of how you would approach that patient and that situation and maybe some examples of language to use with both the consulting team as well as the patient and family when you're kind of thrown into that scenario. Sure. One of my favorite consults. Um, (laughs) So the first thing I usually do is I will, because some of these consults may just come through a resident who may not have all the kind of the whole backstory. So the first thing I'll do is I'll, I think this deserves like an attending to attending discussion about um, what discussion has already occurred with the patient and the family. And kind of, I just like to have an understanding of what that attending feels like um, as far as the patient's prognosis, you know, um, and what has been told to the family already. When I approach the family, I always tell them, you know, I'm here, I'm the the surgeon on call this week, and I've been um, asked to see you in consultation for a trach and a peg. And then I'll sit down and like, why don't you, kind of how I would do a family meeting. Can you tell me what's been going on? What's your understanding of things? What you're hoping this trach and peg is going to do? Because what I have found is that families, and maybe this is because what they've been told or oftentimes what they've heard or what they want to think, they think like this trach and peg is going to change the whole trajectory of this patient's illness many times. And so I feel it is my job to kind of tell them, well, it's not really going to, it doesn't change the overall prognosis for many things, especially say for a debilitated, you know, older medical ICU patient. Um, So I'll explain what, you know, this may make them more comfortable. Um, It'll allow us to take that ET tube out of their throat, so they may be more comfortable, um, but it's not going to change their overall illness. And I'll kind of let them sit with that. And if I sense that there's a lot of confusion, then I'll kind of come back to the attending and I'll ask if we can all sit down and talk because I don't want to, again, I, I have learned over time, like I don't want to be burning my relationships with the people who are consulting me because I feel a certain way about a particular patient situation. Um, So I really try to bring them back in, but I feel strongly, and I wrote about this in my article, like, you know, we as surgeons, we are not meant to be just technicians. You know, we're allowed to have our own like um, thoughts and our own prognostication. And as long as we share them appropriately with the patient and the family and the attending, I I don't think we can go wrong. Benoit, any any tips or tricks that you would add in and, and maybe share with us your personal style in this situation? Well, I think it's not much more different than what we uh, heard from Red. I think um, if I see that there's um, a, a prognostication issue that may impact uh, negatively the quality of life of the patient, I will go uh, to have a discussion with the uh, primary team before I talk to the family, there's, I don't like this awkward conversation where the family said, well, they told me that uh, she's going to be fine. Whatever <laughs> that means, you know, and the patient had a GCS of five, clearly had a devastating uh, stroke. And um, I, I don't know, I feel very, and I've been burned a few times maybe, and telling, oh, no, 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 that's not going to be, you know, they die of pneumonia, this or that. And, and I think... I need, uh, as Red mentioned, we need to educate the residents, but very, very commonly we need to inform at least, if not educate, the at the attending level too. Hmm. I'm also, you know, another thing, Dave, is I, I think a lot of um, families in these situations don't really realize what happens to these patients after, you know, very soon after we put these traits and pegs in, a lot of these patients go on to like long-term acute care hospitals. Right. And they don't really the families are so surprised that like, oh, you know, we're not going to be here anymore. And I, I just don't think they're really often well-informed about why do, what comes next after these procedures that, again, may um, kind of extend life, but don't necessarily um, improve the quality of life. Well, let me, let me, put forward a, a scenario, a clinical scenario, because I, I love that you said we are not meant to be technicians. I hate walking into a room and I'm supposed to say, oh, I'm just a technician. I'm just doing a trach and peg and pretend that I don't have an opinion on the outcome, right? So if you have a 97-year-old woman with dementia who gets her UTI and then gets her pneumonia 
and they call you for the trach and peg. And it looks like through the notes that the primary medical team has had an extensive, quote, extensive discussion with family and everybody's agreed to trach and peg. And then they call you and say, that, yep, we've talked to them about all the risks and benefits and we're just ready for the trach and peg. How, how do you navigate those waters? Because I, I don't want to be a jerk about it and come in and be like, uh, your primary team was wrong. This should be a comfort care situation. But I also don't, I don't want to trach and peg a 97-year-old lady. You know what I mean? So how do you, how do you manage those waters? I think one thing I always ask everyone is if your loved one was sitting in the room right now, what would she tell us? And it is amazing when you ask that question, it kind of brings the person into the room. And oftentimes I find just that question really gets to the heart of the matter. Like really would this 97 year old really want the trach and the peg? You know, if, if the answer is a hundred percent, yes. And I talked to the team and like everyone, it seems like they've done everything. Then once in a while, I'll say, okay, I, you know, I don't want to say I give up, but like, okay, like I did my due diligence and I don't necessarily agree with this, but it is what it is. But oftentimes I find that question wasn't necessarily asked. And so sometimes that will change the tune a little bit. Should we be talking to the primary team? You know, when they call us and say, Hey, listen, seriously, we're going to trach and peg a 97-year-old? Like, should there be some pre-conversations? Because the, the conflict I get into is I walk in the room and think this is ridiculous. I ask questions like, you, like you've suggested, and then now I'm in conflict with the medical ICU. And then they get their feelings hurt, and the family's confused. And I don't want there to be this back and forth, but I also don't want to just be a technician. And to add on to that, Carrie, too, I think the hard part is, um, you know, surgeons often get accused of the, you know, hubris to come into these situations that have likely been going for several weeks, you know, um, and to come in and just be like, whoa, whoa, what are you doing? I mean, that that can very much be perceived in a wrong way. And I think, you know, we, as surgeons, we are probably particularly at risk of assuming we know what's best in any given situation. So I think navigating that is very challenging. I've had some very uncomfortable discussions I, I'm um, with the primary team. Like I will do a, I will talk to them first. I will go see the patient. And then if I'm struck with like, this just doesn't seem right to me, I'll just, you know, I'll just kind of excuse myself to the family. I'm like, I'm just gathering more information. I just want to make sure that I'm doing things, you know, for your family member and not to them. And I'm just going to circle back with the team and then I'll come back and have another, you know, without kind of saying too much. I've, I've had to put like, I have no poker face, but I've tried to get one. Uh-huh. Um, and and then really circle back with the team. But again, there, I, I am actually was just in a situation this past week when I was on service where I was like, I'm just, I just do, I just, do not agree with this on any level, but at the same time, I didn't feel it was an unsafe procedure. I mean, it was, it, I could do it. I didn't think I was going to be putting the patient at harm. I just didn't agree with any of it. And I just, in the end, I was like, I only have so much emotional energy and this one, I'm just going to act as the technician, I guess, which I hate, but it happened. There are those situations. Well, since we're sort of talking, um, philosophically and sort of, you know, about conversations with patients, families and things. Uh, Benoit, let me ask this uh, to you. Um, Do you find that the concept of palliative care is well understood by family members? Like, is it okay for me to say, oh, I want I want the palliative care team to come by and visit with you? Does that mean anything to the average patient? Um, Is that is the is the concept or the idea, the vocabulary of palliative care? Do you find that to be well established in the non-medical population or are they going to look at us blankly like palliative care what the heck is that uh that's a good question too i think uh culture has changed not only the medical culture which i think is lagging a little bit but certainly the lay culture there's many many articles in um in in a regular uh literature non uh non-medical that inform people about, uh, about the palliative care and i think um there is no reason not to inform them if they look at you with, uh, I don't know what that is. Um, sometimes it's difficult, um, as we heard the, the previous uh, example, which is a very common one. But I think uh, the, our society is changing and there's a demand for it. And uh, we need to fill the gap the best we can. 
I find when I bring it up, most people think I'm talking about hospice. And I've certainly had a lot of hands go up in my face saying, we're not ready for that. And, you know, I do kind of take the time to explore, like, you know, what does this mean to you? And re- and really try to tell them why I, f- I feel like it would be a good um, fit for them. In fact, one family I had this week where it was really about palliative care, had nothing to do with end of life care, it was more to support a patient and a family in the midst of a devastating uh, trauma where the young patient who's now quadriplegic. And I basically ended up telling the family that, you know, for the sake of you, for the patient and for the sake of myself and my team, I really need this extra team involved. Like this is just such a devastating um, injury that I really just feel like as many people as we can be involved to help you guys would be, it would benefit everyone. And I think they understood. I was just being very vulnerable and human. I was like, I just can't handle all of this by myself. Like I cannot support all of you by myself. And so finally, after two days, they kind of, uh, they were open to it. Right. Well, the other thing, and this, I don't know if we'll have a good answer for this or not. I don't know if there is a good answer, but um, Benoit, I think you mentioned the situation where you know, the, the family may be struggling to decide what they would want for their loved ones. So what I want to talk about for a little bit is that conflict between this, you know, the conflict in the mind of the surrogate decision maker. So I think, you know, if you were, most of the time, it feels like if you ask the person who is the family spokesperson and say, you know, would you personally want trach and peg, for example, or would you want this potentially life altering surgery or a colostomy or even something, you know, along those lines, it's funny how often the surrogate decision maker is able to say, well, I personally wouldn't, but, you know, when I'm deciding for somebody else. So can you tell me a little bit about that conflict and, and how did how, how, what are some of the skills to kind of help people think less about, you know, or, or to, I don't know, maybe, maybe not have the responsibility of making these horrible decisions or something. What are, what are your, what are your tricks for helping surrogate decision makers make tough decisions when, especially when the goals of care from, the patient maybe weren't known beforehand. Yeah, that, that's a very common situation. <clears throat> and if there's only one surrogate decision maker, usually there's only one or two, but sometimes you have a vocal family that may or may not agree with even what their mother wanted. So it's it's um, it's an extremely difficult situation. I try to um, highlight the current situation, highlight what, what we can do, what we cannot do, what we cannot do is essential, and also try to bring them to the idea that it's not about them. And it's very difficult. I'm not sure I'm successful most of the time, but this is the way I try to get it. Uh, having a team approach, as Red mentioned, is essential, multidisciplinary, interprofessional, people who come from different backgrounds, uh, nurses, chaplains, uh, social workers helps a lot. Never let them go. Support them. The fact that they refuse maybe a sign of their distress is a sign of their distress. Mm-hmm. And the decision making for these people sometimes is a, a tearing event. It is a tearing. So it's right. very difficult. I don't have I don't have um, a, cutty, uh, a cookie cutter uh, answer for that. Well, Benoit, let me ask you this: when when families, you know, you've gone through the entire pros and cons and risks and benefits, and the family member looks at you and says, what would you do if this is your mom? I was going to ask the same question. What would you do? <laughs> yeah. Right. And so you don't want to be, you don't, we, we've been trained the past 20 years to not be paternalistic. But when they, when they, they're, what they're saying to you essentially is, I don't have enough information to make a decision. Can you please do this for me and take this burden? Is it bad to be paternalistic and just take that burden from them and say, I would do this for my family member? I mean, should we just back off and try to just dive in deeper and figure out their conflict? So first, from the concept of being paternalistic, being a surgeon is very often be paternalistic. You tell people what they need. You have a hernia that needs to be fixed or doesn't need to be fixed. You have a three-vessel three, uh, three vessel blockage, you need to have a cabbage. I mean, it's not like we go into deep details. Now, life and death may not be that close, but it's still you're going to have to discuss uh, risk and benefit of the, the disease. The problem here is that we don't talk to the person who can make the decision because 
her decision-making capacity is gone. And so I think there is a, well, I think doesn't matter, but there's a significant amount of, of, of support to describe that um, the decision-making of people takes time and evolves like, um, like the stages of grieving. And it's not about convincing, it's bringing them to reality of life. And I think that's the most difficult part. I'd, I'd also argue that, you know, this whole thing of paternalism or maternalism, um, when, I, when a patient's family member asks me that, I feel like I've had all these years of, you know, been blessed with all these years of education and training and practice you know, I want, I want, they haven't been blessed with that perhaps. So I want to share my experience with them. And so I will, I feel comfortable in saying if I was in this position and this was my mother, this is what I would likely choose. Because I, I feel like part of my job is, especially more of that when I'm wearing that palliative care hat is I want to, in some ways, help relieve the family of that decisional burden. And I'm willing to kind of sometimes take that on myself um, rather than have the family member sit with that for the rest of their life. Because we know, like, if this patient's going to die, what's left? It's the family member that's going to sit with, you know, perhaps some awful amount of um, grief, or not just grief, but guilt that they don't really need to be holding. And so if I can help the family member in that way, I'm, I'm happy to do that. Right. I totally and that's agree a bit, with that. that's a bit controversial, right? I mean, that, that, in the palliative care world, that's controversial like the concept of when the family asks what would you do and you have to give your opinion which i agree with you i give my opinion this is what i would do but it's seen as paternalistic well i, I let me chime in here I, I think you know our our responsibility to our patients is very much a fiduciary responsibility which means that we are responsible for acting in their best interests and like you said red you know we have all been blessed with a lot of years of training, a lot of experience, a lot of exposure to these questions. And so I, I feel like it's almost like an abandonment to not give a recommendation, especially if they're asking me for one. I mean, you know, if, if I'm meeting with my financial planner, which is, you know, the equivalent because I know nothing about money or finances or any of that kind of stuff, you know, oftentimes I'll ask the person, hey, well, what should I do? And then uh, because I just, I don't have enough experience to know, and I'm trusting that the person that I've you know, engaged in this fiduciary responsibility will, will kind of help guide me. So I don't know that there is, I don't know if there's such thing as benevolent paternalism or maternalism. I, I mean, I, I think this may be a case for that concept though, that, that, you know, part of our responsibility is to make a recommendation. And then even if, if, if they choose something differently, it's still, we still support that. But um, I just feel like it's kind of empty for me to walk away and be like, well, there's your options. I would so agree with that. Yeah, I would feel like um, it's almost more um, harmful to like to you, you can see the pleading in these families eyes, like, please help me. And to not say anything feels way more harmful to me than giving an opinion. And I think, you know, the the true harm would be if I give you an opinion and you choose the other thing and then I don't do it. But here I'm saying this is my opinion, but I'll support you in whatever you want to do. Okay, I have uh, one more clinical scenario that I want to pose to each of you. Um, so, and this for me is, I think, the most challenging scenario. And the clinical details maybe are not as important, but the response I get from the family or surrogate decision maker is, well, we're praying for a miracle, Doc. How do you handle that? And I'll start with you, Red, and then we'll just go down the line here. So, Red, why don't you tell me how you handle that scenario? Oh, I just heard that this week. Well, you know, one of my old palliative care mentors used to say, I too am waiting for a miracle and I will dance in the street with you if it happens. Like really, and I feel like that. And I also tell them I have seen one or two quote unquote miracles in my career that really have just astounded me. Um, but what I will counter that with is, you know, I too am um, hoping for this miracle, but my concern is this, this, and this. And I really try to lay it out there. Um, that being said, just this week when I heard this, I was just stumped to the point that 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 belief in miracle was so strong um, in a trach peg consult that I had that I just, I realized very early on, and palliative care had already seen this patient as well, that I just, I was just 
I was, I was just, we were not going to get past that. We were just like, it, it was just, we were not going to get past that thinking. And so in the end, this was the thing I was alluding to before, like it just ended up doing the trach and the peg and that was it. Most people I have found when I say, I too am hoping for a miracle and kind of show my humanity, um, then sometimes I feel like they can hear me, but these are my concerns or these are my fears. I feel like then sometimes they'll like hear my true heart, but then my true concerns at the same time. Benoit, how do you handle that? I, I thought you would forget me on this one. Miracle is a thread, it is threaded one by all of us. I mean, when when people pull the M word, I, I don't know what to do because all rationality is gone, right? We we it's about the word of belief that I may not share, and the rest of the team may not share with them. So we talk about different a different galaxy. So when I tried to do, I said, why? why this uh, miracle hasn't happened. And so it, it diverted to another uh, another question. I tried to generate, not a doubt, but like come back to reality. And then very easily, when uh, when people pull the, the miracle word, I pull a time trial word. I need wow, three days for this or whatever time, but I will give you three days to for this miracle to happen. And again, I may not do that on a, on a young adult, who has a TBI, who has a chance to recover, may not be completely, you see what I mean? But the 97-year-old lady that uh, you brought up earlier, I will I will get the time trial. I think I will give you three days. After that, I will stop the aggressive and intensive care and let nature operate its, uh, its, its, uh, its action. Uh, a time trial, that's an interesting concept. But yes. Carrie, what do you do? Oh, Lord. <laughs> So I don't believe in the miracle in the sky. And so I have to like fake it, right? You got to like pretend that yes, miracles happen. But I love that phrase, why hasn't the miracle happened yet? I'm going to steal that. It's great because it, it, it frames for the patient's families. If you're waiting for a miracle, why hasn't it happened? Usually the way I approach this is, um, if I find a family that's uh, particularly religious or believes in some kind of higher being or afterlife, and I, I will talk to them about the afterlife, like maybe the 97-year-old woman, maybe she is ready to meet Jesus, right? Or Allah or whatever 436 religious theories that are out there. Like maybe she's ready. Like wouldn't that be wonderful that we usher in a good death? Because it's, it's really fun as a critical care intensivist to – usher in a, a save, right? So someone's bleeding and you save their life. But part of our job is also ushering in the good death. And so I, I kind of approach the family as like, let's make these next couple of days, couple of weeks, like as comfortable and as enjoyable as possible, which might mean no surgery. That way they can talk to their family and say their goodbyes. And like, it's it, how, how many of us actually get to say our goodbyes, right? And so I try to do like the usher in a good death. And I don't want to be like, as I said before, like a jerk about it, but you're not going to survive this thing. How can we make it the best it could possibly be? I I find it extremely challenging. And I think part of it is because, you know, I, I, I very much hesitate to go there with the patient, so to speak. And I feel like it's not really my role to sort of also be the, you know, minister, pastor, rabbi, whatever. Um, one of the one of the things that I saw mentored for me during residency that I think is very helpful as well is I, I like to clarify with patients and say, well, tell me what a miracle looks like for you. What mm-hmm. what will that miracle look like? And oftentimes when they are asked to provide that level of detail, some of the you know more reality or more of the likely scenarios start to sink in of like, okay, like you know, is you know giving a thumbs up is that enough of a miracle or is um, you know, it, it, are you expecting them to walk out of the hospital and, and things like that? And, and I think sometimes that offers another chance to kind of help, you know, do a little bit more relationship building, but also kind of education about, you know, realistically, this is what recovery is going to look like. And, and is that something that, you know, this person would be in favor of? So, 
I've not I've not heard that question before, but I'm going to steal that one. That's a great question. I like it. Yeah, it's I like it's it. a it's a challenging thing because, like you said, Benoit, it's like you're dealing with a whole different. You're not dealing with the the left brain sort of uh, you know strictly rational mind anymore. You're into the territory of faith, which is which is uh, fraught. Let me ask a question about um, documentation. So it would be nice if there was, so our Epic system has just developed a tab that um, is advanced care planning. And anytime you have these conversations, whether it's outpatient, inpatient, whatever, it all falls in the same tab. And so you can scroll back through conversations from two years ago, one year ago, six months ago, last week, and and see it all. But this is the first time I've ever seen anything like this, where there's like a, a continual documentation of your goals of care and expectations. What, what are you guys doing at your hospitals? Do you have something like this or, or do you just scroll through previous notes? So at Mission Hospital, we actually in the last six months just kind of came up with a power, we use Cerner, a power note that is an advanced care planning note that um, I hope more people will continue to use. But if we use that note, then it goes into this advanced care planning tab as well. And, you know, the documentation is important, not only because we want to be able to scroll through that history, but because we can also get paid for our time. And I think that that's really important when we're having these discussions. You know, we know that if we're having these discussions in the ICU, it counts towards our critical care time. But any time that we have these um, discussions on the floor, there is like an advanced care planning code that you can use along with your daily rounding code, as long as you're charting that you had these discussions. And so I think that's important because as Dave kind of like alluded to previously, you know, we don't always have the time to do this, but if we do have the time, one of the arguments I've heard was like, well, I'm not getting compensated. Well, you know, you can get compensated for these difficult conversations. And to be clear, your, your the code is 16 minutes. If you spend yes. 16 minutes of time on this, you can bill for it. Exactly. So it's not, most of these conversations take way more than 16 minutes. In fact, if you go to 46 minutes, then you can use the second code on it. And again, it's not all, one one thing about the code that's nice is you don't have to fill out any forms with this. You don't have to have filled out a DNR or a most or a living will. It's just the discussion. And again, it's not about the money, but I do want people to know that you can be, these are difficult, time-consuming conversations to have and so you can be compensated well um just in the few minutes that we have left here um uh, thank you both and, and carrie uh, your contributions have been great as well I, I think maybe you've got uh, secret palliative care uh credentials that you haven't told me about in the past i love palliative care <laughs> my my last question is let's say i'm in a place that doesn't have a, a palliative care consult team or doesn't have palliative care trained um, providers in the hospital. Are there resources available online or out there, or what would you recommend for someone who maybe is in a more uh, resource-restricted uh, practice environment? Red, why don't you go first? Well, I'm going to give a plug for the Surgical Palliative Care textbook that's supposed to be coming out. Supposed to this month or next month, um, that was edited by um, Dr. Dunn and Dr. Mosenthal. So I, I'm very excited to kind of see that um, come to light. Um, also, I think that um, there's a couple week-long courses that I, I did one myself in my fellowship um, that really focus on a lot of these communication skills and focus on these small groups where you really get to practice these skills in a way that we didn't really get to do, say, in surgical residency, that I think are very uh, could be very helpful for people who are interested in this. I certainly don't think um, most people need to go out and do a year-long fellowship. I think most surgeons should be able to do a lot of primary palliative care themselves. And then also just learning what other resources are in your hospital. So where I trained in residency, we did not have a palliative care team. So I just really, one, tried to figure out what was the local hospice situation if I wanted to send someone to hospice. And also I just started to rely heavily upon the case managers. So they know a lot about at least getting um, people hooked up with outpatient palliative care, or if they're going to get hospice, where should they be getting it? It's kind of trying to figure out what the resources are in your own community. 
Benoit, what do you suggest? So in, in limited resources, uh, the, um, the, the initial thing is to identify people who will support you when you have ideas that may not go mainstream. Mm. So I would, I would usually try to find a group of uh, volunteers for the advocacy, the chaplains. Uh, there's always a few SEU nurses, some, some doctors sometimes, who... Uh, do it on their own, try to aggregate people, try to see if we can offer a service. Because most of the time, palliative care is not offered because people don't have the time, as we all mentioned, or the education, or it's very, very difficult. It's more, much more difficult than anything we do. We talk about the death of, or the uh, bad outcome of somebody. And once you have done that with the, the small group, Things get better. The culture spreads. Um, I've done that a couple of places. Uh, this is not easy anyway. Okay. Well, thank you both uh, for uh, joining us and discussing with this, uh, this concept today. I, I really appreciate it. And, and I'm, I'm hopeful that we can, you know, as a specialty, kind of think more about how to incorporate this and how to really integrate it into the way that we practice on a day-to-day basis. I think it's always a challenge. And I think Sometimes the biggest hurdle is overcoming our own mental hangups about this concept and, and how best to approach it. Um, like I said earlier, uh, Red, if you're okay, I'll put links to the two articles that I saw um, recently that are that very much kind of touch on this topic, at least the, the surgical clinicals in North America about the Trach and Peg uh, paper. Um, Benoit, do you have any uh, links that you would want us to include in this? No, I don't have anything uh, on that. I wish. Yeah. <laughs> Soon. Well, as you mentioned, the field is growing, the interest, um, the fact that you open uh, this podcast to a very controversial topic in the trauma community is a first step. So uh, links will come. Okay. Well, Dr. Hoffman, Dr. Blondeau, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And Dr. Valdez, thank you as well. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the East Online Education Section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East.